0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Lafayette, Louisiana, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling, with numbers specific to Lafayette, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Lafayette. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is a first class in a series of classes we're planning on doing on how to analyze deals. So what I'm gonna do today, today is gonna be walking you through how to analyze a 20% down rental property, investment property purchase. And so I'm just gonna walk you through how to use the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. If you don't have a copy of the spreadsheet, You can uh, check the show notes or wherever this recording is. Um, It's also available at realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. You'll have to have it emailed to you. That way we can keep you abreast of any of the updates or changes we make or any of the uh, new improvements we make um, in case there's an error somewhere and we need to get it out to you. That's why we require you to register in order to get it, but it's completely free. All right. So with that being said, let's kind of just jump right into it. And we're going to walk through analyzing deals. Now, realize we're focused specifically on analyzing a 20% down deal. And if you're trying to analyze a deal that's different than this, we're going to cover those in separate classes. So I'm going to try not to go too far off the rails with talking about, you know, if you're doing this type of deal, then we're going to analyze it differently this way. If we're doing this one, we're going to analyze it differently this way. We're really just going to focus in on today, analyzing a 20% down investment property purchase, and we can do the other types of deal analysis in other classes. That's the intent. Also, it's not quite done yet, but by the time most of you will listen to this recording, because I'm going to do it uh, well before uh, it arrives on the podcast, but uh, in the show notes, I'll have a link directly to a deal analysis example of a 20% down property in your city specifically. So I'll have, I'll do all the analysis for the 300 cities. We'll have those posted to the website. So just go ahead and check the show notes and click on the link. And it will walk you through a web-based version of this spreadsheet Using numbers from your particular market, and if you happen to be a, an expert in your market, and you're like James, you know your numbers are off a little bit here. You know, purchase prices are usually this, or you know rents are usually this, or taxes are usually this. Go ahead and reach out to me so that I can update those, and then we'll automatically update that for all the modeling we do and all the deal analysis we do in the future. So that being said, let's jump into the deal analysis. So I just pulled up a copy of the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. I did make a couple minor tweaks. I'm working with version twenty twenty three point zero two. Um, It is May 10th, 2023, as of the time I'm recording this. And so um, you'll get the most recent version. I'll go ahead and upload it to the website. But I did make some changes since the last update. So you'll see some of those here if you're paying really close attention. All right. So the first thing is, let's uh, put in the address. So it's whatever address you're analyzing right now, you could do this. And since this is sort of a sample deal analysis class, I'm just going to put, you know, sample deal analysis class here um, as the date so that you can see that. This is just a way for you to keep track of what property you're analyzing. That way, when you're saving multiple ones, you know exactly the address you're doing. Um, and, And, you know, for most folks, I would say they are not saving deal analysis spreadsheets for deals that they're not buying. So if you go and you're analyzing deals and you realize, hey, look, this is not a deal for me. I'm going to pass on it. A lot of folks are not saving those. If you make an offer on a property, a lot of folks are saving those if you buy a property, you're definitely saving those. Or if it's an exceptional deal, if you're like, oh, I would totally buy these in the future, then some folks will save those as, you know, this would have been a good deal had I got my offer accepted, or, you know, had I been ready to buy, or had I had enough down payment, or whatever the version of why you didn't buy that particular property was. And then you can make some notes here to do that. Okay, so you can basically put in whatever your deal analysis thing is. I'll also point out, sometimes... You'll want to go in and make some modifications to the spreadsheet. Like, you know, you always know what the percentage is for your taxes or, you know, what like whatever your numbers are around there, you could go ahead and, and do like a template for yourself and then always make a new copy of your template and start there for your deal analysis instead of trying to use the, the standard one that we have, which may or may not be ideal for you in your particular situation. Okay, so do that deal analysis. I'm going to basically analyze the property. It's going to be about $400,000. Whoops, not 4 million. So $400,000. And we're going to buy it for 400000 Now, if you were able to buy this property at a discount, like let's say you're able to get it for three ninety or something like that, you could basically put three ninety in here and the, the calculations will, will all be correct when you do that. If you have to pay a premium, if, for example, you think the property really is worth four hundred thousand, and you're able to negotiate a, you know, uh, you have to bid the property up in order to get it. You would put in a premium here as to what the purchase price was. So you may put in, you know, four hundred five or whatever you had to pay as a additional amount above what the property is worth in order to do that. And so you may have to adjust some of your numbers if you have to pay a premium on your property. For today, we're going to assume for now that you're able to buy the property for what it is listed for. So the property has been sitting on the market for. You know, a week or so, and you're not able to go in and negotiate hard because, you know, they're still new on the market and they think that they're going to be able to get their price. And so you're able to make an offer for the exact list price right now. You know, if it's been sitting on the market for a little while or you're okay, you know, and no on, you know, getting your offer, if you don't really want it, if it's not that great of a deal, then maybe you decide to come in a little bit light and you can do that there. In this case, uh, seller concessions are when the seller contributes some money towards your closing costs and it's negotiated when you make your offer. In this case, we're not able to get the seller to pay us any seller concessions, so I'm going to put zero in there. But if you were able to get the seller to contribute some money to cover some of your closing costs, you'd put in whatever that number was here in seller concessions, and it would show you. And we also show you what percentage the seller concessions were. That way, you could see if you're going over the number that you need for your loan type. So if you go call your lender, you're like, look, you can't have anything more than two percent in seller concessions, then you know that this number can't be more than two percent here. And you'd have to go ahead and realize that uh, don't negotiate more than two percent because you won't be able to get any. Okay, so in this case, though, we got zero in seller concessions, no dollars in seller concessions. And for this particular deal, I'm also assuming that you are putting uh, 20 percent down on this. So you're going to put eighty thousand dollars down on a four hundred thousand dollar purchase. And that's what you're putting down on this particular property. If you had put less than 20% down. If you're trying to buy this as an investment property, well, actually, I told you at the beginning that we're not going to go over these other examples. So I will cover this in another class, but realize you'd probably have private mortgage insurance if you did less than 20% down. But we'll cover that in a future class. I'm trying to stick to just analyzing the 20% down version today. All right, so closing costs. So this is a really interesting discussion. So for closing costs, you're, you're going to call up your lender and you're going to find out what your estimated closing costs. In a lot of cases, they're not going to be able to give you an exact number. Some cases they will, but in most cases, they're not going to be able to give you an exact number. But closing costs, in my opinion, are not just the closing costs from the lender. They're not just the fees that the lender is going to charge you in order to get the deal. I also like to include in here all the other costs it would take you in order to buy this property. And that includes some things that I think a lot of folks don't usually take into account when they do their deal analysis. For example, if you paid to have an inspection done on your property if you go and hired a home inspector and have the inspector come in and inspect the property, I think that should be included somewhere in your spreadsheet. Now you could include that in your like rent ready costs as a cost of getting the property ready to rent you could include it in your closing costs or you can include it you know somewhere else if you wanted to do it like as an additional expense somewhere. I tend to prefer to put it either into rent ready costs or closing costs. Now here's a couple other weird gotchas on that. So sometimes you're going to pay for your appraisal not on the closing settlement statement. Sometimes the lender's going to say to you, hey, we need to get an appraisal done. Uh, I'm going to send you a link to my portal for you to prepay for the appraisal using your credit card. You're going to go on there and you're going to actually pay for the appraisal there. Make sure you include the cost of your appraisal here so that you actually take into account the cost of it. Now, at some point in time, you will probably have a property under contract where you end up not closing on it where you've gotten through the point where you've inspected the property, maybe even you've paid for the appraisal on the property and maybe the appraisal comes in low or you're unable to negotiate an agreement on the things that need to be repaired in order for you to buy the property. And so you're gonna have occasionally a property where you pay for an inspection and or an appraisal and you end up not buying the property. So where do you put those expenses on properties that you've never actually closed on but that you have in order to acquire? the property that you're eventually going to acquire. So you you might go through a property where you paid for an inspection, you paid for an appraisal, and you didn't buy the property. Those expenses, in my opinion, need to be covered somewhere. It needs to be covered as part of the investment you made in order to buy whatever the next property you're buying is. So for me, I like to include any previous inspections and appraisals I had to get to the point where I'm buying the property that I'm currently on. So I sort of associate any inspections or any appraisals I have on properties that I'm about to buy the next property with, if that makes sense, okay? So really the intention is, look, I had to go through this one property that I ended up not buying in order to be able to buy the property that I'm now currently buying. So I need to take into account those expenses there. And I would usually either put those into rent-ready costs or to closing costs. Either one of them works. It's really just covering that expense somewhere so that you know exactly what you have into the deal, okay? So closing costs, in this case, we're gonna assume that it's about, 1.1% 1.1% and you call up your lender and you got those and you adjust it so that the number of the cash amount you have in the deal is correct or you have this rent-ready cost. So let's talk about rent-ready costs. What is a rent-ready cost? A rent-ready cost is money you're going to need to spend on the property after you acquire it to get it ready for rent. Sometimes we buy essentially brand new properties. And brand new properties still have rent-ready costs. For example, a lot of my clients buy new construction properties. And when they buy new construction properties, there are things that the builder does not always provide that we need to pay for. Sometimes it's blinds for all the windows. Uh, Sometimes it is... you know uh, fencing for the property. Uh, sometimes it's new appliances, like the, the builder decides not to include the refrigerator in their deal, or you choose not to pay for the refrigerator from the builder because there's a premium on it. And so you have to decide what you're going to do there. So even for new construction properties, there tend to be things you need to do on a property to get it ready for rent. And usually what we do is we look at the inspection report to get an idea of the things that we need to do to a property to make sure that it's ready to go. You're always going to get Well, when you get an inspection, you're going to get a list of the things that the inspector believes should be handled, should be addressed on the property. You will be able to negotiate some of those some of the time with some sellers to get them to cover those. In a lot of cases, though, you still want the deal and you're not willing to Nickel and dime the seller because there's three other offers behind you. And the seller's going to be like, I'm not doing anything. You know, you were the high bid and we have, you know, two other offers behind you all above asking price. And so rather than spend the $3,000 to do the work that needs yours, there's someone behind you that's $500 less than where you are. And so they may choose to not do the repairs. Or you may choose, you know, as part of your negotiation when you make your offer that, hey, look, I'm not going to ask you for all the small stuff. If there's something major that comes up on inspection, then we'll definitely have to discuss that. But if, you know, the the inspector says, look, you know, you need to replace this broken faceplate on a light switch. I'm not going to ask you to do that. That's part of your negotiation in order to get your offer accepted. So there are going to be things you're going to need to have done on a property. That's where you put that number in rent ready costs. You put all the expenses you need to do in order to get the property ready to rent. In rent ready costs, right here, and so you know, even if you're buying a brand new property, you're probably going to have at a minimum a thousand dollars. So you know, to put zero dollars in here, I may have had. I'm trying to think about this, I'm going to estimate because there's no way I could do it exactly, but maybe three properties in my entire career that had zero dollars in rent ready costs, and they were like the exceptional properties where like someone lived in a property and every little thing was handled already on the property. It was in perfect condition, like better than new, like so good that you walk in, you're like, there's literally, I can't spend a dollar in here, but that is so rare. In most cases, you're going to have some money that you need to do. You need to spend on in order to have rent ready costs. Okay. So rent ready costs, you put them in there. Now, we're gonna go down here in a second. We're gonna look at different rents on this property. Um, I'm gonna show you, like, you know, what what it looks like here. But this would add up if you had cumulative negative uh, cash flow. So let's go ahead and assume for a second that you know you're only able to get I don't know, uh, let's call it twenty eight hundred dollars a month of rent on this property. Okay. So now you've got negative cash flow. You have put in, we're we're, we're estimating, it's not true, but we're estimating for this particular property that you have $2,800 a month in rent on it. And you can see from it that you have negative $329 per month in negative cash flow. So what then happens is this calculation, this is actually gonna go calculate how much cumulative negative cash flow you have over the entire ownership period of the property. If you want to see how we do that calculation, I'll go into overrides so and we'll show you all what's going on here. So, if we go look up the cumulative negative cash flow, just scrolling down until I find it. So, here it shows you what the negative cash flow is per year on the property in the first year. So this is showing you that it's negative three3948 dollars in negative cash flow in the first year on the property and you could also see here this is the little spark line the spark line shows you the red dot shows you where it's negative and then you can see where it eventually labels uh, levels out and you have no negative cash flow on it okay so first year about negative negative four thousand dollars however in year two your mortgage payment stays the same right your principal and interest part of your payment stays the same your taxes they go up a little bit your insurance that goes up a little bit. Your rent on the property goes up a little bit, and so a lot of the expenses on the property, which are tied to our estimate from rent, like vacancy and maintenance and property management, those all go up a little bit. But overall, your cash flow tends to improve because your rent goes up. Let's call it three percent, which is what I think we're using here. But your property, your uh, your, ta- your your principal and interest part of your payment remains fixed, and that's the largest part of your expense. So what tends to happen is your cash flow tends to improve over time. In this case because we had negative cash flow to start with, it becomes less negative. If it was positive, it would become more positive. Okay? So in the first year we had almost $4,000 negative cash flow, but in year 2 we only had negative $3,310. And in year 3 we only had negative $2,652, and in year 4 we only had negative 1975, and in year 5 whatever it is, we had negative $1,277. In year whatever this is now six negative 559 and then by the time we get to this year year seven we have zero dollars negative cash flow so what the software does is it actually sums up all of these numbers for you and tells you what the total amount the cumulative total of negative cash flow you have over this entire period until you no longer have negative cash flow So we estimate that you're not going to have negative cash flow on this property. And what it does is that in order to help you be more conservative in your investment, it says, look, if you're going to have negative cash flow on this property, it is more conservative, it is prudent for you to take the total amount of negative cash flow that you're going to have for owning this property and to set it aside when you buy the property as part of your initial investment. Why do I say it that way? Why do I say that your negative cash flow is part of your initial investment? Because what negative cash flow really is, is it's deferred down payment. And the easiest way for me to show you this is to show you what happens if you put down more. So we have 20% down right now. If I decide to put 25% down, you can see that the negative cash flow is less. Okay. If I put 30% down, the negative cash flow is less. If I put 35 percent down, then I have no negative cash flow. So really what negative cash flow is is it's saying, look, if you had put 35 percent down, you wouldn't have negative cash flow at all when you bought this property. But because we're choosing to buy a property with less down payments, we're deferring the down payment that we could have put down upfront. Now we're choosing to pay that over time in the form of negative cash flow. Another way of saying it is, you could go find a better deal if you could find a better deal. But if you're saying, look, I've gone and I've looked at my marketplace, I've analyzed hundred deals, and this is what deals are in my current marketplace with this interest rate, even if I'm looking for the best deals, sometimes that happens. You could choose to go to a different market. You could choose to apply some of the 88 strategies we have to improve cash flow. Or you could say, look, you know, based on the criteria that I have, the deals that are available in my marketplace, the interest rate environment that we're in, the rents we're able to get, all of those things say, look, if I put... 20% 20% down on this deal, it's going to have negative cash flow. And so really what I have is deferred down payment in the amount of 13,721. Okay. Now, what I want to point out to you is, is it better for you to put the 20% down or to put aside or, or to put more down and not have the negative cash flow? So in this case, we would have to have thirteen thousand. set aside to address any negative cash flow we had in a particular marketplace, because in this case, we chose to put 20% down. Okay. So it's $13,721. Let's call it $14,000 just to round up. So if we had put 25% down, we went from $80,000 down payment to $100,000 down payment, which means that we put an additional $20,000 down. We had $14,000 in negative cash flow, or now we can put 25% down and we have a $20,000 more and $100,000 down total and we still have negative cash flow. If we put 35% down, which is about oh, let's do 34% and see where it is. 34%, 33%. Okay, so 33%. So instead of putting $80,000 down, we could have put $132,000 down and not had negative cash flow. In other words, we could have put $52,000 more down to acquire this property or we could have set aside $14,000 to address the negative cash flow issue. Would you rather put $52,000 down or put $14,000 more into a savings account to address the negative cash flow issue you have on the property? The choice is yours, right? Because you could have put $52,000 more down or you could have put $14,000 aside in order to address the negative cash flow. That's the difference, right? That's the difference between putting it up as down payment or setting it aside as deferred down payment in the form of negative cash flow over time. Okay. So let's go back to 20% down. We've had that discussion. So if you had any negative cumulative negative cash flow, it'll calculate it here, and it will use that as part of your return because now you have this cumulative negative cash flow in addition to your down payment and your closing costs and your rent-ready costs. That becomes part of your investments when we calculate return on investment because you have to have that money set aside prudently make this investment in addition to reserves which we'll talk about here in a minute all right okay so now it tells you your total amounts that you invest in the property $80,000 for the down payment $4,400 for closing costs about $3,000 in rent ready costs in this example about $13,721 in cumulative negative cash flow that you've just set aside somewhere in the savings account maybe with your reserves where you have those ready available for the negative cash flow that you inevitably get I don't want to confuse the issue. However, this is probably not the amount of money that you will need for your negative cash flow because we do have some cash flow from depreciation. When you buy a rental property, you get tax benefits of owning the rental property. Those tax benefits can be used to look like cash flow. You know, Cash flow from depreciation. The tax benefit is called depreciation. So we call it cash flow from depreciation. So you could actually say in each paycheck you get from your job, you say, look, I know at the end of the year, I'm going to get this depreciation benefit by owning this rental property. So instead of actually just waiting to the end of the year for my tax return to be done and getting a refund by overpaying my taxes, what I could do is I could go into my job, my employer, go to HR and tell them, look, I would like to make some adjustments to my exemptions because I know that I'm getting about this amount back on my taxes at the end of the year, so I can adjust my exemptions so that I get more in each paycheck that I could then use to address the negative cash flow on the rental property, or to supplement positive cash flow if you were getting positive cash flow. It doesn't have to be negative. So in this case, it shows you that, using the below market rent that we just put in here for this example, that negative $329 in cash flow plus $206 in cash flow from depreciation, which we've estimated Based on our effective income tax rate. So you have to put it in here to estimate it. It's based on your actual income tax rate. But in this case, we just use an estimate. You can put whatever your number is here. So now we're saying that $206 is expected to be cash flow from depreciation, negative $329 from cash flow. So really the total between these two is the sum of these, or negative 123. So it's not really negative 329, it's really negative 123. So this is conservative. Okay. That's why we're saying it, it's more conservative to do it this way, even though really you're not going to have anywhere near that much negative cash flow. It's going to be more like negative $123 a month instead of negative $329 a month because of the tax benefits, the cash flow from depreciation. All right. I think I covered that. So this calculates your mortgage amount. Then you're going to call up and you're going to get your mortgage interest rate from your lender. In this case, since we're putting 20% down, it's probably going to be in a 7% range right now, maybe even a little bit more. All right. So that's going to adjust your cash flow a little bit too. We're going to do a 30-year loan, 360 months. You'd get that from your lender too. If you're going to decide to do a 15-year loan, you'd get that. It'd be 180. In this case, we're doing a 30-year, 7% down, 7% interest rate, 20% down loan to do that. Uh, if you had private mortgage insurance, you'd put it here. We're not going to cover that today because you put 20% down and you don't have private mortgage insurance when you put 20% down the property. Then the income of the property. So I had put this arbitrarily low to have this whole discussion about cumulative negative cash flow. In this case, let's say that rent is thirty two hundred dollars a month, which means that you're getting a slightly negative cash flow on this particular property as of right now with the current with the current assumptions. Okay, so it's showing you what your negative cash flow is so far, which we're going to make some adjustments here. It's actually going to change a little bit. All right, vacancy rate. So vacancy rate is not an exact number. And I'll give you an example to prove this to you. Let's say you have a property whose rent is really $3,200 a month. That's fair market rent. But let's say you decide you're going to rent this property. You really want to have no vacancy. So you're going to decide to rent this for $1,000 a month. It's supposed to be $3,200 a month. But you're going to decide to rent it for $1,000 a month. Or are you going to have a lot of vacancy if you're advertising a property at $1,000 a month? Probably not. Your vacancy is going to be very, 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 very low if you do that. What if you decide this is a $3,200 a month rental property that you're going to try to get $4,500 a month? Are you likely to have more vacancy then? Sure, you're trying to get above market rent to do that. So really, vacancy is a function of the rent that you charge and rent is not exact either. In most cases, rent is a small range, right? No two properties are completely identical and no two people are completely identical. And so rent tends to be this slight range. It could be really $3,100 to $3,300 or $3,000 to $3,400. So there's this range of what rents could actually be. And you might find that one of the things we recommend is you start 60 to 90 days ahead of your, your current tenant leaving the property. So 90 days before your current lease is up with your current tenant, you approach the tenant, you say, look, uh, rents are gonna be this if you renew. Are you going to renew? We need to know because we're gonna start marketing the property and we wanna get our next tenant lined up before you move out. And so they're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make a decision. So usually within a week or so, they tell you what they're gonna do. I plan on renewing. And either they renew and you don't need to worry about anything or they tell you we're planning on moving out. Great, you're moving out. Now what you do is you go start marketing your property for rents. And what we tend to do is we tend to we start at a much higher rent than we think we can get. We're sort of testing the market because we have 60 to 90 days left before we have to find a tenant. So we start at this higher price. We see if we get any calls. You don't get any calls. We drop it a little bit and we keep marketing. Don't get any calls. We drop it a little bit, keep marketing. We start getting one or two calls. Okay, we drop it a little bit until we're finding that sweet spot of testing the higher rent. That way we get the highest possible rent we can get by starting early and testing high price. That's how you do it. So if you do that, if you're starting 30 to uh, 60 to 90 days ahead of time and you're testing your rent and you're coming down after marketing it for a week or so, then you should have over a long period of time on any given rental period it could be higher than this, but over a long period of time your vacancy rate should be about 3%. You could choose to change your dynamics, you know, try to get a higher rent, not start 60 to 90 days ahead of time and you could high, have a higher vacancy rate. Or you could say, I'm going to price it as to whatever I believe the market rent is, plus a little premium, start really early, and make it such that vacancy is about 3%. So vacancy is a number that you can't just ask somebody what the vacancy is in a marketplace. Because your marketing strategy, your rents, your ability to persuade somebody, your salesmanship, and when talking to a tenant on the phone and getting to the property, and how well you maintain your property are all factors in what your own personal vacancy rate will be. Sure, you can use the vacancy rate for a market as a guide, as to what we're seeing, but that should help you adjust your other metrics too, not just vacancy. Okay, so I'm going to use 3%, but really vacancy is a number that you said. I think somewhere between three and five seems really reasonable for most folks. Property taxes. So for property taxes, you're going to actually look in the MLS or the county's records. You're going to get the property taxes for this particular property. Realize, though, that if you are converting this to a rental, and in some markets, they have homestead exemptions where taxes are artificially low for someone who is living in the property as an owner-occupant, or maybe there's a senior tax exemption if there was a senior living there, you can't always use what the taxes are for the property. Especially if you're changing the use, if it was an owner occupant property and they were getting some type of homestead exemption, some some type of lowering of their tax rate, you can't use what their taxes were. You need to know what the taxes are likely to be for a rental property in your market based on the percentage of the price that you're paying for the property, and then you should estimate it so that you're not artificially putting in here. Oh look, you know taxes are fifteen hundred dollars. This property cash flow is like crazy. But really, when you buy the property, as soon as they reassess the property and they adjust it for you being a non-owner-occupant investor owning the property, they're going to go up to $3,000 a year. You can't do it that way. You need to adjust it yourself so that you can estimate what the property taxes are going to be for you and your particular situation, okay? So you can't just look it up and put it in here. You need to think about it. You need to make sure that it makes sense for you. All right, property insurance. You're going to call up your um, your insurance agent. You're going to get a quote for a property Usually what we do is we get a quote for a property like this. You know, we're looking at, in this case, $400,000 properties. So you're going to talk to your insurance agent and say, look, I'm looking at properties between three fifty dollars and four fifty. dollars you know, they got these types of characteristics. What is a property insurance quote that I could use for those? And what would it be if it was on the low end, you know, the 350000 side, or what would it be if it's on the high end of the 450000 side? And you're going to get an estimate from them. Now, if you decide you're going to pursue this property, like you're about to write an offer or you are... Um, you know, under contract to buy the property and you're in your due diligence period, this is when you firm up your numbers. You're not calling, in most cases, you're not calling your insurance agent every time you're analyzing a deal. You're not making, you know, 15 calls a day to your insurance agent to get 15 quotes on 15 properties that you're really not super serious about buying. You're just analyzing them to find out if it's a deal you should pursue or not. So you're getting estimates, you're using those. And then once we decide to move forward with the property, either before we make an offer, if you're a little bit less sure about, insurance and stuff like that. Or in most cases, when you're a little bit more sure and certain, and you've had some experience, it's usually during your due diligence period after you've put the property under contract. Okay. So you're going to estimate that. Um, This is actually a little bit low. I'm going to put it up here. We'll say it's $1,800. In fact, that may even be a little low, depending on the insurance policy, getting how much of the risk you're taking on yourself. Uh, We did a whole class on insurance, which we'll probably do another one, where we talk about like how your insurance rates can change based on your situation, how much risk you're willing to take on yourself and your premiums. Okay. In this case, there's no HOA. So we got that. So we're down to negative $41 in cash flow. Um, if you have any utilities that you're paying as a landlord, you'd put those in here. If you have any other expenses you're paying here uh, for the property, like, you know, snow removal or, um, you know, something else that you're paying for, you could put those in there as other expenses, maintenance on the property. So, um, I separate out maintenance and capital expenses. We have a whole class on how to calculate what number you should put in for CapEx. Some people choose to include it in maintenance. We use—you'll get a feel for this over time. But part of it is you need to look at the dollar amount that you're doing and make sure that the percentage makes sense to you. So if you figure out, you know, what the maintenance you expect to have in the property, how many on average, you know, plumber calls and electrician calls based on the condition and the age of the property, the effective age of the property. um, You'd want to estimate this, you know, carpet replacement or flooring replacement on a property between tenant turns, how often that's going to happen. You can estimate all this for maintenance to make sure that your number makes sense there. I'm going to use 10% for this case. I think that's in the ballpark for a lot of properties, especially newer properties. However, if you've got a much older property, this number could be twice that. So just realize that, you know, that this could be, a wide ranging number, depending on the quality of your property, um, and, and realize that you need to adjust for that. The capital expense number, when you go through the capital expense worksheet, you'll see that this number is usually pretty significant because you should be setting aside money for that roof. You know it's coming. You know you're going to need to replace the roof at some point. You know that you're going to need to replace the furnace. You know you're going to need to replace the air conditioner. So you got a budget for these things. You know those are examples of capital expenses that you know are coming, and you know the life cycle of these things generally. And so you could say, look, you know. Roofs last last about 20 years in my marketplace or whatever it is normal in your marketplace. And so you need to take the price of a roof, adjust for inflation out into the future and say, you know, it's 10 years old now. So I only got 10 more years left on it or it's brand new. I got about 20 years left on it and adjust the price you are paying 20 years in the future with some inflation in there and calculate what you need to set aside. That's the whole CapEx class. Go watch that one for details on how to get this number. All right. And then management. In this case, if we had a professional property manager and they were charging us 10% of gross rents, this would be negative $41 a month. In this particular case, I'm going to say you're managing it yourself, and that significantly changes the cash flow numbers. We went from being negative $41 a month to now we are positive $269 a month and we no longer have that cumulative negative cash flow thing either because we decided to self-manage. If you're going to hire a professional property manager, put this in here. If you're going to say, look, I actually have some hard costs of doing property management. I need signs, I need lockboxes, I need all that stuff. And you want to set aside a certain number in here. Maybe you decide to put in, you know, um, not 0.5 there, uh, 0.005. You're like, look, I need to set aside about, probably that's even a little high. Let's do 3.5. So I'm going to set aside about $130 a month to cover my hard costs of having to manage this property, you know, printing statements, mailing things, the software I use to manage my own properties, uh, the, the signs, the lock boxes, all that other stuff. I'm going to put a hard cost in here to kind of account for my management costs. I think that's reasonable. If you're going to actually hire a professional property manager, you know, a lot of those costs are going to be covered by them and you can put in the full number. Some people will choose to put zero in here. I think that's less than ideal, but you know you should probably put something in there even for your own costs. All right. Then we estimate what the land is worth because when we calculate depreciation, we cannot calculate the value of the um, land. When we calculate our depreciation, it's only the value of the building. So we estimate what the land is. A lot of times you can get this from your CPA, or if you go onto the county website, sometimes they'll tell you what the value of the land is estimated at, and you can then use that as a defensible position for putting in what the land value is, and you can use the rest of your purchase price as the value of the property, which we do automatically in the spreadsheet. So put in whatever land value is. It shows you what the dollar is. If this is a residential property, which if you're renting to people, it probably is. If it's commercial, you put in C here, and that would adjust your depreciation period. In this case, we're using R. And then whatever your estimated effective income tax rate. Again, we're estimating your tax benefits. This is not intended to do your taxes for you and tell you what your tax rate is and then be able to show you that. So estimate what your effective income tax rate is go look at your last year's tax return and go ahead and use that if you don't know go ahead and do it that way and then you can put in a number here i think 20 percent is probably a pretty good number for some folks i mean not everybody but you could do that all right so that being said you put in all your numbers now we're ready to do some analysis we look over here and we can see a bunch of stuff for the sake of time because we're running i don't know relatively short on time for what i hope to do I may not cover all the different things. I'll try to go through as many as I can, but we'll we'll kind of see where we end up. So, the first thing we, a lot of folks like to look at is this cash flow one. And we've been talking a little bit about it when we talked about that cumulative negative cash flow thing. But this shows you three numbers. It shows you your monthly cash flow on a property. How much money you're making after all expenses on the property, your monthly cash flow, and it shows you that number right here, $269 a month. It also shows you your estimated cash flow from depreciation. That tax benefit you get by owning this rental property. And then it sums up these two numbers and shows you what we call true cash flow. True cash flow is simply the sum of your monthly cash flow on the property plus the tax benefits you get by owning that property, the cash flow you'd get from depreciation. It is the true cash flow you would get by owning the rental property. And that happens to be $475 a month if you bought this property with 20% down. Okay. Then it uses some of these numbers and some of the other calculations. And we look at how many, what our return is in dollars for the first year. So if you wanna see the first year, if we just look at the the raw returns, we're making about $12,000 from appreciation. The tendency for property values to go up, we're estimating a 3% appreciation rate. And so we're making about $12,000 from appreciation. Now, this is true, whether we are just looking at the dollars for um, not including reserves, and if we're including 6 months of reserves or if we're including 12 months of reserves these that's what these three different ones are this is the total return you're getting in dollars if you have no no reserves at all this is the return in dollars if you have 6 months of reserves and this is the return in dollars if you have 12 months of reserves and so it shows you the difference in returns for those calculations appreciation is the same for all three okay then cash flow shows you you have $3229 per year in cash flow by buying this property and that's the same for all three Then, how much you're paying down on the loan, your debt pay down, that's the red bar $3,251 is how much you're paying down on the loan in the first year on this property. And that's the same. And then that cash flow from depreciation, this number times 12, basically. And it shows you it's $2,473. That's your cash flow from depreciation. Then you have no reserves in the first one. So there's no gray bar, but there is a small gray bar here showing you what the return you're earning on the six months of reserves that you set aside. So we assume that if you're, going to sit, if you're going to have six months of reserves, you're setting that aside in some type of account where you're earning a return. And for the six months one, we use 1% as the default. So you're earning 1%, you have it in some type of savings account. So you're earning $340 per year on setting aside six months of reserves. Then if you decide, look, I want to put aside 12 months of reserves, but because I don't need the full 12 months at any given time, I could take the majority of that and I can invest in something a little bit more aggressive, like stocks. And so you might be able to earn seven or 8%, let's call it 8%, I think that's the default. And so you're earning $2,721 per year on setting 12 months of reserves aside in the stock market. Because we're gonna set those reserves aside, we're actually gonna take into account the return we're earning on those reserves. So it shows you now the total amount in dollars you earned in year one for these three different scenarios. If you're not taking into account reserves, you're earning $20,953. If you put aside six months of reserves in a 1% account, you're earning $21,293. And if you do 12 months of reserves, you're setting those aside in the account at 8%, you're getting 23,674. Okay. So it shows you the dollar amounts of the three different situations. Now you're like dollar amounts. That's really good to know. But obviously if I have to put a lot more down in order to get that return, that's a different return on investment than if I had to put very, very little into this deal in order to get those returns and you're right. And so what we want to look at is the return on the amount you had to invest or return on investment in year 1. And that's what these three are. And they match up. This is the return if you had no reserves. This is the return if you had 6 months of reserves, and this is the return if you had 12 months of reserves. And so it just shows you very clearly that your overall return is 23.97 if you are ignoring reserves, which you shouldn't cuz in order to make the investment, you really should have reserves. So this does take that into account. It calculates now what your return is if you set aside six months of reserves and this total cost to close, okay? So 20.39% is your overall return. And it shows you what the breakdown is. It shows you that, look, you're earning 11.49 from appreciation. 3.09 is your cash on cash return. 3.11 is the amount of return you're earning from paying down on the debt. 2.37 is the amount you're earning from um, your cash flow from depreciation. And then I don't even, I can't even read that. two or maybe it's 0.33 for your return from your reserves. And then your total amount is at top, okay? And then this is the return if you put 12 months in. It's 19.5. So the dollar amount you earned by having six months or 12 months of reserves actually increased the more you put aside reserves. But now the return you're getting on the investment, which includes the reserves in the denominator, actually goes down. So it, it, it suppresses your return by having this amount in the denominator, by having this amount that you needed to invest in order to acquire the property. So if you were gonna lie at a cocktail party and tell them about how great your return was, and you were gonna ignore reserves, you'd tell them 23.97. But that's not true, right? Because in order to invest in this property, you really do need to have reserves. So really, if you set aside six months of reserves and you were earning 1% on that, that'd be 20.39. If you were setting aside 12 months, it's 19.5. And if you're like, James, you know, This 8% you're using for the reserves, that's not appropriate. Well, let's go change what that is. So do search for reserves and let's see. So here you go. The rate of return you're earning on the six months reserves, we have it at 1%, but you could override this. So the rate of return we're earning on the 12 months is 8%. So let's go ahead and change it. Let's say, you know, I'm only really earning 4%. Great. Let's put it 4%. It'll adjust all these other ones. If you want it to go back up to 8% in year two, you could have it do that. I'll go ahead and leave it out for now. And then we go back here and provided the software is working, it changes that number for you. So now it recalculates it. It recalculates what you're actually earning on that and what the overall return is. And you can override that for any year. You override any number, right? You can change the return for that. You can change the return in dollars you're earning. You can do anything you want here and override any of those numbers. That's what all the overrides are for, okay? Also, the interesting thing about overrides, which we'll cover in a class, probably not soon, but eventually, is because the way it's set up with the, all these overrides for all these different years, now we can track and see how your investment performs over time. You could put in what your actual appreciation was in year one. You actually put in what your cash flow was in year one. You put in what your actual you know, debt pay down was in year one and your depreciation benefit was in year one. And then we could see how your investment performs because you're using real numbers. So this could be a tool now, not only to deal do deal analysis when you acquire a property, it could also be your deal analysis um, over time to keep track of how your investment performs. Okay. And we'll talk about that in another class. Okay, so now you're looking at this. And with these three numbers, I think for most people, that's what they're looking at to make a determination as to whether they invest. A lot of times they're looking at cash flow. A lot of times they're looking at their returns. A lot of times they're looking at this uh, cash on cash return on investment, which is the green percentage as to how much they invested. And they're looking at overall. Is this a profitable investor for me? You know, I'm making $21,000 or so by making this investment. And it's about a 20% return. Is that meet your deal criteria? Is that something that gets you excited about buying this property? For some people, it's like, yeah, that's a lot better than what I'm doing elsewhere. Other people, it's like, heck no, I'm not getting out of bed for, you know, a less than 50% return or 100% return. It really depends on you, the types of deals you're doing, the type of strategy you're doing, your marketplace and the economics that are going on. And so you got to decide what a deal is for you, okay? So those are the top three. Let's talk about some other ones. This shows you your returns if you sold the property at this year. So if we look at year six, you can kind of see the return you're getting, Um Is this three different returns, but it shows you the range of what they are if you sold the property, and it does take into account the expenses of sale. You know, your real estate commission going out, your share of closing costs when you sell a property, your depreciation recapture tax, and your capital gains tax rate. So it does take those into account when it calculates your returns when sold. It shows you a simple annualized return on investment number, a compounding Return on investment number or compounding annual growth rate is another way of looking at that, or the internal rate of return if you like those. So it has all three flavors of your return, depending on which one you like. And you can see what the overall return is. And you can see how those diverge over time and what they end up being. Now, you're like, hey, what are you using for the you know, the uh, real estate commission going out because I'm an agent, I'm only paying half or, you know, I I don't have, uh, I'm not going to have depreciation recapture tax or capital gains tax because of this situation, do 1031 or whatever. Well, we've got the ability to override those as well, right? So you can go look at what those are. And you can say, like, I'm only going to have a real estate license for the next five years. So for the next five years, it's going to be, you know, 3%. And then after those five years, then it's going to go back up to 6% you can adjust those and the the software will then go do that math for you and show you how it affects your return by doing all that. Okay. So that's why it's designed to do the overrides the way it is. All right. But for now, it's going to be normal. All right. So you can now see all those returns. If you're a cap rate person, you're like, look, you know, James, all this cash on cash is really nice, but I'm really a cap rate guy or gal. I want to see what cap rate is. Great. Here's cap rate. So it shows you cap rate over the first five years. It is the uh, gray bar here, 7.19, 7.41, 7.63, 7.86, or 8.1. And this greened one is your cash-on-cash return on investment. And some people like to look at the differences between those. So they're plotted on the same chart for you if you want to do that. These are the same numbers that are here, though, right? So we're showing you the numbers for this return on investment number without the reserves, okay? So these are more traditional non-reserve-based calculations of these. Okay. Now return on true net equity. So this, this brings up a discussion about what true net equity is. So true net equity is the amount of equity you would get if you sold the property and walked away. This is after your closing costs, after the real estate commissions, after capital gains taxes, and after your depreciation recapture taxes. Because when you sell a property, you don't get the difference between sale price and the amount you owe. That is, while we call that equity, that's not a real number. It's an imaginary number. Because if you were to go to sell that property, well, you are gonna take a little off the top for your real estate commissions. They're gonna take a little bit for closing costs. They're gonna take a little bit for you know, your capital gains taxes and they're gonna take a little bit for depreciation recapture. So really what you're left over with is a much smaller number. That's true net equity. It's the amount you walk away with after all those expenses of sale. And if you're thinking about it, don't you wanna know what the return you're earning is how much appreciation you earn on that amount that you're going to walk away with. Because if you were going to go sell this property, you'd want to know what return you need to beat with that new investment. And so we want to know what the return we're earning on the small amount that's going to remain when we sell the property. And so this shows you all of your returns for appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, and depreciation the cash flow from depreciation. And then it shows you the total of all these. So your total return on true net equity in the beginning is pushing you know 34% and change. Okay, But over time, your return on true net equity typically goes down because your equity tends to grow and the returns, even though some of them grow, some of them stay the same, um, but the returns tend to grow slower than your equity does. And so what happens is it tends to, over time, your return on true net equity tends to decline over time for most of the returns. We'll cover that in another class. Okay? All right then these are really easy to cover i might actually get through this so these are really easy to recover to cover gross potential income your gross operating income your operating expenses and your noi your net operating income it just shows you your key metrics for year one if ever you want to see these for any of the other years it calculates all them here so you can go see what right here Uh, monthly gross potential income shows you that monthly gross operating income uh, annual gross potential and annual gross operating income. Then it calculates a whole bunch of expenses on here, shows you your annual operating expenses and your net operating income on all these. And so you can go look at them. And if you wanted to override any, if you're like, hey, look, my net operating income in year two was this, you can go ahead and use any of the overrides for any of these numbers, honestly. Um, I, I basically made everything overridable so that you could override whatever you want. All right, so it does all those. Then your annual non-loan expenses how much you're putting aside for vacancy, how much you're losing for vacancy, really. Uh, Property taxes, what you're paying for that. Uh, Insurance, your HOA costs, any utilities you're paying as a landlord, any of these other two expenses, the maintenance you're setting aside for the property, uh, CapEx, if you're setting aside money for CapEx, and then what you're spending on property management. So that's all there showing you for year one. And of course, you can go look at overrides to see any of those other years if you want to as well. And then finally, this equities and cost to access equity. So ignore the dotted lines for a second and just look at the solid lines that are going up to the right. The darker section is your true net equity. It's that one we discussed over here. It's the amount of money you get when you walk away after sale, after taking into account real estate commissions, closing costs, um, capital gains taxes, and depreciation recapture tax. So it shows you how much dollar amount you'd have for that. So looking over here on the left side, you can see the dollar amount. You know, It's about, I don't know, whatever this is, $60,000. Um, for the amount of money you'd have in your equity, your true net equity. And that tends to increase over time. Now realize your cash out refi equity is how much money you could do a cash out refinance for, for a loan. And that usually is up to a maximum of 75% loan to value. You can adjust that percentage here. I forget where it is, but you can do a search for it and find it. But it's basically 75% 75 loan to value. So if you did a, you know, you could go to uh, 85% loan to value on that one it's gonna change this chart and show you now your numbers are much higher, okay? Let's go back and do the the real number though. So 75% loan to value is what it typically is. And then it will show you how much equity you have to get up to that 75% loan to value. And so it shows you this light gray bar, how much cash out refi equity you have on your property. Now that's all nice and good to know how much in dollars you can have in equity and to see that. What's more interesting though is how much money did you need to spend to get at that equity? What is the cost to access that equity? Because if you're able to pull out $5,000, but it costs you $5,000 in refinance costs in order to get at the $5,000, that's really expensive money. And so these dotted lines show you, they use the, the, the uh, scale on the right, but it shows you how much it costs you to get at that money. So for example, the cost to access true net equity is about 45% of the equity you have in there. Because real estate commissions are large, closing costs are large, your uh, capital gains are large over time, your your uh, cash flow from de- your um, your depreciation recapture taxes are large over time. That those are very large expenses for the amount of money you get out, and so you can see that those, while they decrease over time, or this is over twenty years, you can see that they decrease. They're relatively expensive. It's relatively expensive for you to pay all those costs to get out of the property, and so this is a percentage of the amount you're getting back. That it costs you to get those, okay? And then this other dashed line shows you the cost to access your cash out refi equity. It's zero at the beginning because you don't have any money you can access. You're, you basically put 20% down, so you only can go to 75% loan of value. There's no equity that you can get at by doing a cash out refinance until your property value grows enough. And then it becomes really expensive because the cost to do the refi, which is also overridable. Let's see, cost to access true net equity yeah the cost to cash out refi percentage so this is the percentage of the loan that you're doing so you can adjust whatever this is we're using 1.5% for like all your costs to do a refi on a loan okay so you can go see what that is but the cost and access, the cost to access the equity is really high uh, you know you're 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 spending a lot of money on that refinance in order to get very small amount back out and then it drastically reduces over time um until it gets down to it's very very small once you have a lot of equity in the property okay so This is it. This is the analysis we've done uh, to cover a 20% down investment property purchase. Hopefully this helps you understand sort of the framework and how we do all this analysis and how it all works. We will cover how to analyze future deals. We'll cover everything from 25% down investment property to 100% down investment property. We'll do 5% down Nomad. I'll probably end up doing some creative financing stuff in here. Um, We'll just go through a lot of different analysis so that you can see How this changes when you analyze different types of deals and how we look at these things and how the assumptions vary. That's all I got for you. I see we have no questions. Thank you all for coming live, everybody. Uh, We don't always have people on live, but thank you all for coming and uh, have a great day. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Lafayette is harder than ever. Book a call